Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Veronika Grzebalska and I'm an assistant professor at the Institute of Political Studies, Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw. And I recommend Visegrad Insight to everyone who wants to learn about this interesting laboratory called Central Europe. Welcome on the 2nd of November 2021, Visegrad Insight podcast. It's a day of remembrance of those who passed away after All Saints Day, All Souls Day. Uh, All Saints Day. Today is All Souls Day. Yes. And uh, in a number of countries of Central Europe, this is hugely important. Not to say that in other countries it is not important, but in countries like Slovakia, I think even more in Poland, you would even say this is the main family uh, reunion uh, across the dividing lines uh, over, over the graves memorizing those who passed away. In uh, in Visegrad, inside the Respublika Foundation, we also memorize, uh, we, we remember uh, Marcin Krul, Marcin Krul, the founding editor of Respublika, uh, professor of philosophy, history of ideas, who uh, led uh, the journal, the Polish language journal and the organization for three decades, nearly three decades, um, and who passed uh, last Uh, last year. Uh, we also uh, will soon announce Marching Krul Fellows, um, the fellowship uh, uniting uh, the leading voices on democracy across Central Europe, which is the topic, has been the topic of, of Marching Krul very much, the future of democracy and the reflection on democracy in Poland and Central Europe specifically. Uh, is a f- form of, of us uh, uh, remembering him and honoring uh, a great intellectual and public figure. And today, uh, our weekly show focuses on the political events before we go into to, to an interview with our special guest in the second part. Uh, today, as usual, uh, there is... Uh, Kamil Jarończyk, Managing Editor at Visegrad Insights. And myself, Wojciech Przybylski, we're both in this our little studio at Visegrad Inside office in Warsaw. And we're uh, narrating uh, to you the, the, the most important events of the week. What we want to highlight definitely is the political dynamics in terms of opinion polls in Bulgaria, as we're heading very soon, basically in, in less than two weeks uh, for new elections in Bulgaria. The third, uh, third round this time will be accompanied by presidential elections. We, we expect uh, President Radev, the incumbent, to, uh, to be re-elected. But there is an interesting dynamics uh, from one of the smaller parties Uh, that uh, that is the party of two ministers from the caretaker government. Uh, we continue the change. Um, these ministers are Kirill uh, Petkov and Aren Vasilev. They were the economic and finance ministers. And it was uh, suspected uh, after the failure to form a government uh, the second time that these two would um, uh, would attempt to maybe to run um, in the third elections. And it was too late to actually create their own party. So they're running on uh, uh, already existing party lists. Uh, two inter- interesting parties, one, well, uh, kind of known throughout Europe, um, the... Volt. Volt is a European Federalist Party, and it has its chapter in Bulgaria, Volt Bulgaria. And the other parties are Social Democrats. Yes, the Social Democrats. So, so that's very interesting uh, development, as the opinion polls suggest now that the uh, that this party, we continue the change. 
is uh, heading to be the second strongest, according to the opinion polls. We'll see what the, the actual re election results bring and may change indeed uh, the political structure of the country that has been under the radar for a number of years, much also thanks to Hungary and Poland, uh, of the rule of law and the, uh, and the corruption scandals. But otherwise, uh, it has been the country where things in the in the political and the democratic security sense, we're not going the right direction. Now, there is some window of opportunity for the, uh, indeed, parties of change to uh, to come in and show what they can do. Um, and that wouldn't be uh, the, uh, the, 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 the very, very hilarious and dangerous party of populists uh, that was uh, called the, there is such a nation that we also have written about extensively in, in the past months. We have covered Bulgarian elections and political situations and energy situation quite a lot. So we'll be coming back to that topic uh, naturally very soon. But speaking of rule of law, I think we should also mention that the Helsinki Committee in the US Congress is going to have a hearing exactly on the 3rd of November. Watch this space and watch how the US Congress is looking into the rule of law question. Also because Poland has brought a lot of attention on this topic very recently in this part with the European Commission. 3rd of November uh, afternoon, Central European time, uh, then I think it's also possible to watch it on online. Uh, I think there's a YouTube, so most probably you can follow it on Visegrad Insight, will retweet it and maybe comment on it. Yes, um, there is uh, there's also speaking of political dynamics, there is um, Romania and Czech Republic. What's uh, happening there? Kevin? Yes, uh, in Romania, it's uh, also a bit maybe under the ra European radar, but uh, also very interesting because um, Kitsu's government has uh, fallen actually due to spending plans of the recovery fund in the EU. Um, a caretaker uh, was chosen, uh, who was the previous Minister of Defense, Mr. Uh, Nicol uh, Nicolae uh, Kitsau, um, but uh, but uh, now he will have to face a vote of no confidence in the government, and it's uh, unlikely that um, that he will win this uh, vote of. Uh, uh, no confidence, uh, meaning that uh, a new caretaker government will have to be uh, chosen, or even uh, it might lead to early elections in Romania. That leaves uh, that leaves the president of the country very much in the position of the kingmaker and um, the only stable element, as we have also uh, pointed out in an analysis by Sever Voinescu um, over a month ago. This, uh, despite the political turmoil, Romania political stability on the international national scene uh, remains high, not doesn't help the, the internal problems and and much of that also relates to the to the performance during the, uh, the the COVID pandemic and the distribution of the vaccine and disinformation. There are alarming numbers, not only because of the numbers of people not vaccinated, but also because of people, how many people are um, unwilling. Un unwilling and uh, how many are living their conspiracy uh, theory driven um, uh, strategies of, of not, not participating in this 
a life-saving effort. Um, this is uh, Romania, then life-saving that brings us to Czech Republic, where uh, Mr. Zeman, uh, presumably still alive, but we don't know, as the circle around him is, uh, a murky circle around him, is uh, protecting access to the president. Uh, they, uh, they release some videos where president is seen signing something, but you're not really sure if he's conscious. This situation is... Um, Uh, protracted uh, but necessary departure of a clique around uh, Mr. Zeman with people uh, tied to uh, Russia and uh, well, let's see, let's say let, let's leave it to the prosecutor mm, office uh, later decide. and uh, investigators to uh, to decide. But there are obvious. <laughs> there are obvious reasons for uh, expecting that there will be investigations once the government in, is installed. And we're also uh, looking for the decision of Mr. Uh, um, Babish, whether he will run for the president of uh, Czech Republic. Uh, one of the ministers, uh, Mr. Havlicek in his government, has been very strongly, um, he's been very vocal to, to encourage him to do that. So that is that is for Czech Republic. But then, um, aside of of uh, party politics, there is really interesting real politics uh, connected to energy, and uh, we don't mean only uh, COP 26 meeting uh, last weekend. But I think there there are a couple of developments that we may highlight. So maybe speaking of Czech Republic, what's uh, what's next with the Turov coal mine case? Yeah. So the Turov coal mine case uh, is uh, is uh, still going on. It's actually going to be on the 9th of November, the hearing. So then it will be decided. Um, an unprecedented ruling was actually given uh, that Poland has to pay for each day that it keeps the mine open. Um, very controversial ruling. Uh, we'll see how the court uh, addresses the fact that Poland, in fact, has not paid anything yet. So, But also Poland remains uh, optimistic. My personal belief is that there are good reasons for Poland to defy uh, such a decision. It It was impossible, technically it was impossible to stop a call, uh, this mine. And uh, but but yet, of course, there is a, there is a pressure point. Despite Turov, uh, or in spite uh, uh, potentially winning Turov, there is much bigger fine from the European Court of Justice okay. now to be uh, considered uh, regarding the suspension of the judicial chamber. And the spokesperson of the of the party of the PIS party of the government has been recently announcing again, promising that this will be. Presented the, the the new bill will be presented at any moment. We can expect only that this bill be also uh, showing further the det deterioration of the judicial independence as as the a party wanted or the government wanted to um, to limit the powers of the Supreme Court um, while uh, applying the the regulation the, demanded by the European Court of Justice. Uh, but back to energy topics, uh, there are very serious and pressing issues all across Europe regarding uh, gas delivered from Russia. Despite promises of Vladimir Putin, we see decrease of uh, of gas flows um, to the point where the, the gas pipeline from going across Belarus 
uh, to Germany through Poland, uh, so-called Yamal gas pipeline, has been essentially emptied from uh, from gas. No gas flow has been reported as of this weekend from the direction of uh, Russia, and reverse gas flow had to be initiated uh, from Germany also for technical reasons to, to operate that. Watch this space. This is also a space that Slovakia is looking um, at. They have a major flow of gas through their pipeline to the rest of Europe, and they are also seeing this uh, as, a, as a very worrying uh, trend. They are, they are watching carefully because it impedes on the uh, energy security of that country. Slovakia is also, at the same time, very much um, into the potential new purchase of minority shares in Stredoslovenska Energetica. This is an energy company where a majority of shares, 51% of shares is uh, owned by the government, but the minority shares are owned by EPH um, company uh, of two Czech uh, uh, oligarchs, uh, essentially Mr. Kshetinsky and uh, Tkach, uh, who, um, who are planning to sell it. They also lost a bid uh, recently to buy Czech Energy Company uh, to MVM, uh, a Magyar, uh, Hungarian company that overbid everyone else to purchase this company in Czech Republic. Now, MVM is also planning to buy uh, the shares from them in the Slovak company. Uh, this is a company owned by uh, the Hungarian government and uh, it also has uh, the operations of the nuclear uh, PAKS, uh, nuclear power plant PAKS in Hungary, the highly controversial um, contract that they're having right now, controversial also because it's secret, with Rosatom, puts uh, a lot of questions, uh, a lot of question marks from a bigger geopolitical or geostrategic perspective, but also that is going to be a very interesting, very sensitive topic for the Hungarian and Slovak relations because of the state involvement. And so far, what we have seen is that the Slovak government was not, um, not very interested uh, in in allowing Hungarian company uh, to, to go for the purchase. That uh, is something from the economic space, but otherwise in economy, what do, is there anything new? Ah, well, in Poland, there's been, and well, it's honestly throughout the entire Eurozone, uh, we've been, there's been experience of inflation uh, quite a bit. It's uh, being, uh, it's uh, starting to become visible in everybody's, um, in everybody's uh, wallets uh, when we go, when we go out and uh, it's causing a little bit of uh, social uh, social strife. It's uh, the top issue, really, amongst uh, normal people, uh, seeing that they have to pay more for many of uh, com many commodities. So that's something also to look out for. So without raising taxation, the rising uh, costs of living actually bring more income, additional income also to uh, to the government. This will become in time very political issue, very uh, maybe even part of uh, party party strategies to to involve and engage with the prices. We see first signs of that, but of course, nothing to be expected exactly this week. So welcome to the podcast, Veronica. We're very, uh, very glad that you join us uh, with your expertise on defense policies. Recently, we heard from Jarosław Kaczynski, uh, Deputy Prime Minister and the leader of the PIS party, and 
Mr. Błaszczak, who is a minister of defense, a plan to reform Polish defense forces. And what was striking, of course, from the media coverage uh, was the expansion of the of the total number of soldiers up to 250,000 soldiers. Uh, but before we maybe focus on on this catch, on this uh, hook in uh, in the announcement, why do, why don't we tell um, the the listeners what's there? What what is really announced? What is being announced, and what is the state of affair um, regarding Polish defense policies? So as you mentioned, uh, on the 26th of October, uh, the law and justice government announced this new bill regulating homeland defense. Um, And in many ways, of course, there are very many new um, plans and developments in that project. But at the same time, um, in my opinion, the bill merely continues a line of reforms that Poland has been implementing since the war in uh, Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea and the the conflict in eastern Ukraine. So there's not that much of a change um, in terms of three main directions. The first one is, of course, um, um, army modernization and build-up. The second one is uh, enlarging the personnel of the armed forces and uh, military reserves. And the third one is most vague so far, uh, but it mostly looks at what is now dubbed resilience, societal resilience, civic participation in defense, and generally the ability of the society um, to, to function in, in, different, in the face of different hybrid crises. And these are the three main lines. And in many ways, this, you know, this, nothing new has been announced apart from concrete policies and measures that will be used to, to make this happen. Okay, so if, if nothing inside uh, of the policy plan is, is so controversial, why there is so much chatter about it? Uh, because apparently that that really made uh, uh, the the announcement made it to the headlines of uh, at least uh, the press in, in in Poland. Of course, the bill was announced at a very particular and very sensitive time. We have an actual, um, you know, hybrid crisis at our border with Belarus, which is also increasingly growing into a humanitarian crisis, um, and. And the government announcing this defense, homeland defense bill at this particular moment, um, you know, of course, makes everyone interpret it uh, through the lens of what's happening with the weaponization of migrants uh, on our eastern border. So I think that's that's one reason why it's somewhat controversial. Another uh, controversy is, of course, the number of military personnel that the government wants to reach uh, in just a few years, 250,000, if I remember correctly. Mm, And of course, there is this, I would say, a lot of um, societal resistance to um, at least compulsory military service. This has not been uh, reinstated by this bill. Instead, we will have different ways of engaging citizens in reserves or in voluntary military conscription. Nevertheless, um, obviously, this has always been a topic of controversy in the Polish society. The society has always been divided on on conscription. Um, yes, and I think these are these are the main reasons. Um, 
But at the same time, of course, there's a broader issue that I would still mention, which is that this whole Homeland Defense Bill um, mostly focuses on the military, on on the, the rebuilding the military capacities for defense. But at the same time today, we know more and more about how you know, hybrid challenges such as disinformation, um, weaponized migration, um, attacks on critical infrastructure, all these things, they actually require more than just a very big and strong army. They require a type of hybrid defense. And that hybrid defense would focus much more on the society, on civilian institutions, and not really just on the military. So that's also something that might be uh, controversial in law and justice attempt to somehow militarize hybrid defense, which is is so much more than just a strong army. So in a way, what we hear from this political announcement, we don't know exactly what will be uh, the final shape of the law, but uh, we hear that military and centralized command in whatever form will have priority, will take priority over entrusting the society with, uh, well, what can we say, ed- educational tools or, or mil- more military training or defense training? What, what sort of alternatives that would be uh, if, if, you, if we were to speculate on you know, how Polish society should be prepared for uh, the, the, the new types of challenges? You know, first of all, this is uh, this is of course just a, a take. Um, many, but I think many military officials would still agree, uh, and we see that even the NATO itself has been putting more and more stock in this so-called societal resilience. Uh, and the idea here is that, of course, in order to um, be prepared for the different challenges that that are before us, and here, you know, Poland and other countries on, the, on NATO's eastern flank certainly are, uh, I'm not afraid to use this term, becoming frontline states in many ways. Um, and so we, of course, need to be thinking of our security and defense. And the military and NATO's role is very, very important. But at the same time, there are, as I mentioned, all those other aspects that amount to hybrid uh, security. One of these, um, one of the main elements is, of course, just having actual transparent and effective institutions. In many ways, hybrid war uh, or hybrid attacks are attacks on the state's ability to govern. So they're trying to weaken state institutions, we can trust in state institutions uh, and kind of create the situation of chaos. Uh, So, of course, hybrid defense would be working completely in the opposite direction, making sure that we have transparent governance, that we actually do trust our institutions, that we have um, um, the type of journalism that is responsible and that does not reproduce misinformation, um, and of course, all these things under current government are very questionable. Uh, and this is also, um, you know, something to that the opposition certainly should think about. But the opposition is it's thinking about? That's one question. And the second question, can't just PIS understand that these are the, these are the, the modern ways or the uh, more effective ways of, of building up resilience? 
or it just doesn't fit their strategy. So two points mm -hmm. <laughs> on the Polish political situation. Well, it seems to me, uh, and I have a, maybe I'm not um, doing the opposition justice, but at the same time, I've, I, I have this um, opinion of the political liberal left opposition as not really interested in defense and security and not really having any alternative projects. Now, for a very long time after 1989, uh, you know, security and defense were deprioritized all across our region, uh, not just in Poland, but everywhere in Visegrad region uh, in Central Eastern Europe. Armies were reduced and professionalized and um, generally this wasn't You know, in many ways, we lived in this idea that liberal peace at the end of history has prevailed um, and that being part of the NATO alliance is kind of enough in terms of thinking of our collective security. And I think the Polish opposition, I'm sorry to say, still is still very much in that mental state. They're still very, still very much on that planet. So whenever they see defense preparations, they kind of, you know, assume some fall play, some dirty in political interest rather than um, they don't really look at it as something that's necessary. Even though all of this has been, um, all those defense preparations have been growing all across the region after the war in Ukraine. Just to mention, you know, the Baltic states have even returned to the old Cold War doctrine of total defense, um, which is also present in the Nordics. Um, all countries in the region have done something with their defense and have, uh, you know, Czech, even Czechia, Um, started registering all adult citizens um, for military service, of course, those who are willing and able. Um, and in this sense, what's happening in Poland is not that special. But I don't think the opposition has any autonomous voice on these, on these, um, on these issues. But there are many topics that I do believe are not yet uh, taken over by the ruling party. One certainly is civil defense or civilian defense. Now, of course, you know, all the, the type of um, crisis management structures that are not military and that are more connected to uh, firefighters and local citizens. Um, This has been completely dismantled, not just in Poland, but in other countries in the region. And that's presents a space where the opposition could have a strong voice on how to make citizens secure. Uh, that not, it's not just the military, but we need to also create those structures that will first and foremost protect civilians rather than borders. We are looking also again at the same proposal from PIS and the criticism from the opposition is exactly that the uh, homeland security forces, so this paramilitary Uh, organization created uh, of last years is um, is set to be the commanding structure of the of the fire brigades of the fire fighters which means also the civilian um, uh, aspects of defense will be centralized with the proposal we have on the table um, so it, it it seems that not only the, the there is not no, no counter product uh, the counter offer so to say but uh, it, it it's a wholesale of, of a centralized command system do you think it's it's going to first of all be uh, implemented as as we see uh, on the paper and um, secondly and finally maybe uh, 
do you see any any alternative uh, to to that um, in a in the longer run? Of course, provided that there is a change in power in Poland. Um, as for the implementation, um, one thing that doesn't really seem feasible, at least in this time frame that the government um, that the government proposed, is reaching this number of two hundred fifty thousand soldiers in just a few years. Um, so. If I remember correctly, um, when the territorial defense forces that you mentioned were created in 2017, they were planned to reach the number of 53,000 personnel in just a few years. Now, today in 2021, I believe they're at around 30,000 people. Likewise, um, professional armed forces were supposed to be greatly enlarged, and it took six years of the law and justice governance, and they only grew by around 10,000 soldiers. Um, so, of course, this new bill, uh, which also I forgot to mention, that it's um, it's actually a bill that um, replaces 14 different defense acts that Poland has had, and that many of them were very outdated and um came from you know the times of state socialism so it was high time to replace them nevertheless um it seems uh, so this bill does introduce some really attractive incentives for people who would like to do reserve service or uh, part-time voluntary military service but we'll s- it is really it remains to be seen uh, from a strictly sociological perspective i would be very um, cautious. I don't think it's possible to enlarge the armed forces um, at this pace, mostly because uh, this defense sector in Poland that is currently enlarged is becoming a very, very greedy institution, an institution that, you know, demands um, a huge deal out of, from individuals in terms of their time, commitment, loyalty and energy. And as such, the defense sector is fighting with family and the labor market. Uh, so what that means for me and from the sociological perspective is that if any government would like to really increase the number of people in the armed forces, they would first and foremost need to pass a number of structural reforms that, you know, help actually help families by by creating more um, state-run care facilities and a number of different um, laws that would actually help uh, people who are employed um, be also engaged in in defense. Because today, from what I hear, um, many, many employers across the country are very weary of employing territorial defense soldiers because then they disappear all the time when they assist in different crises and, you know, employers um, don't want uh, to have an employee that doesn't come to work for a week. So what my point is that without broader structural reforms um, related to, you know, the care sector and, and the labor market, I don't think it's possible to reach this number. So that's the first question. Um, and when it comes to to alternatives? Well, I would say this is certainly um, the task. I I mean, I personally believe that uh, the opposition, that those on the opposition who will have a very enchanting and feasible security and defense agenda may actually be able to um, take power 
from peace. This is one of the key issues of for our region today, security and defense. And unfortunately, it seems like there is only one strong vision and voice, and that comes from the from the right side of the political spectrum, while the liberal and left side are more in the negative, more in denial and more critical of security and defense, but not really offering any alternative. But what this alternative, uh, what I would say is that it should first and foremost center on this concept of resilience uh, that NATO is also pushing and promoting through different channels. It's a very, very broad concept that, of course, functions somewhat as an empty signifier today. You can fill it with almost anything. Nevertheless, it relates to the ability of the society and the state to uh, overcome a crisis and transform through a crisis. In other words, become better for future crises. Uh, And that this concept of resilience kind of um, shifts attention away from just military might and military force onto all other civilian functions of the state and the society. So, for instance, Uh, What the opposition could do is talk about the resilience of our key public institutions, such as healthcare, paramedics, which are really have been crumbling under the current government. Uh, If anything, we've seen a second wave of privatization of these public services. And this is certainly making our societies less resilient. And in many ways, these are more crucial than just Uh, army personnel and army modernization. Um, Another thing is finding a way to actually include all those uh, um, citizens that are mobilized for humanitarian reasons, are mobilized, you know, during crisis, but they don't have any structures. Uh, and I think rebuilding some type of civic defense structures local, where local citizens could uh, get trainings uh, and be able to, you know, provide first aid. Um, this is also something that might be might be a way to go. Fantastic. Veronica, that actually sounds like a, a, a keynote for the opposition to start building from uh, from the bottom uh, of, of, you know, the basic basic needs the society have in this in, in this uh, days. Thanks so for, uh, thanks so much for um, uh, shedding some light on both the, the government plans and the wider context. And, uh, well, I hope uh, we'll hear from you um, also again on this podcast in Besegrad Insight on, on many other occasions. 